0: Hey everybody, this is Shannon with VIP Kid World, and welcome back. In this podcast, we're going to continue the book reading of Little Soldiers by Lenora Chu, and we're going to be moving into the second part, two out of three parts of this book. The second part of the book is titled Change. Um, This podcast is um, for Chapter 6, which is titled The High Price of Tests. Once again, please forgive me for any pronunciation errors I make, uh, but I do hope that you're enjoying the book so far, and I hope that it is giving you some insight that will help you uh, with your uh, VIP Kid students. Let's begin. Learning something and taking a test on something are two completely different things. Xu Jingdong, a teacher and former education official in Changzhou, Summer, after small class year, we headed home for a break. For Americans who live abroad, summer back home ushers in fresh air and state parks scattered throughout the United States, bookended by visits with friends and family. We hopscotched from Southern California beaches to Minnesota's pristine lakes to the humid, sweltering heat of Texas. Rainy turned to me halfway through our trip. Liberated from his Mandarin tutor, blessed with lush green American parks and seemingly football-field-sized football sized swimming pools, drowning in ice cream and hot dogs, my son had a simple question. Mom, why don't we live in America? While summertime kindled Rainey's curiosity about his parents' lifestyle choices, it gave me the opportunity to observe my little boy against American priorities and habits. I liked what I saw. In short, our little boy was winning accolades from American friends and family, against whose children Rainey's habits stood in stark contrast. Rainey bounded down to breakfast with greetings for all the elders, which particularly pleased my father. He waited his turn. One time, Rainey stood so patiently in a winding line in the American Museum of Natural History in New York that a stranger marveled. How old is he? He's so well-behaved. His eating habits were decidedly unwestern, and his preferences came into clear focus against the American-palate mess of machine-processed nutrition. One friend's little girl ate only things that are white, such as pasta, rice, and bread. Rainey's cousin preferred food that came out of a box or f- plastic freezer bag. Chicken and fish nuggets were a top choice. One Saturday in Houston's museum district, I watched a little girl at a table next to us devour lunch. She stabbed a Capri Sun pack with a straw and ripped back the cover of a plastic pack of breadsticks partnered by a container of chocolate goo. Dessert awaited her in a bag of bright orange goldfish. Sun Ching School has in-house nutritionists. And a chef whose sole job is to slap and pull fresh dough by hand, coaxing out delicate, elastic Chinese noodles. Green leafy vegetables accompany every Chinese meal. Rainy school environment, along with Teacher Chen's take-no-prisoners approach last year, meant our little boy now can eat eggs of his own free will. He happily eats whole fish with skin, nugget form not required. Sheets of seaweed and raw almonds, and he doesn't shy away from anything green, yellow, or orange. One summer night, Rainy had sat down at the dinner table and reached for a piece of stir-fried bok choy. This surprised even me, and I put down my fork to stare at him. "'Watch!' Rainy exclaimed, stabbing a stem with a fork. He placed it in his mouth, chewed, swallowed, and met my stare triumphantly. "'Who taught you to do that?' I asked. "'No one,' he said, reaching for another piece. "'Just me!' Rainey relished the moment. Sometimes a kid must do things that he dislikes, but that are good for him, and he enjoyed demonstrating his grasp of this concept. "'We'll tell Daddy,' Rainey told me, plant matter moving down his esophagus. Meanwhile, as Americans were rolling through a rebellion against testing, A New York teacher had likened the latest national education standards to child abuse. The Chinese school system was already preparing Rainey for an academic life. Now, nearly five years old, Rainey had begun teaching his baby brother Mandarin. Landon was born two years into our time in China. Two small heads huddled over a picture book, naming animals. Only when I journeyed back to America did I glimpse a potential payoff of our education in China. As school had come to a close the previous year, Rainey had also begun to rejoice in his newest accomplishment in the classroom. Mom, I'm writing, he exclaimed proudly, showing me a worksheet he'd brought home from class entitled, Using the Telephone. Rainey had scrawled numbers in tentative halting script. The... One had been traced several times, the stem of the four had been etched before the crook, and no line was straight. But there it was, my little boy, writing numbers all the way up to nine. At the top of the paper, the teacher had drawn a fat star in bright red marker. This development would likely trouble most American and European child development experts. Three- and four-year-olds would be considered too early to write, And a teacher's red star might also draw ire. red pen is like shouting, wrote several academics out of the University of Colorado study, and can upset students and weaken teacher relations and perhaps learning. Western researchers suggested teachers use a pen of a neutral color. I'm certain Teacher Chen would snicker at the idea of American universities spending time and money researching the emotional effects of a teacher's pen color. Personally, I was thrilled that my child, who still wore pampers at night, was etching out numbers and earning star marks in flaming red. That's not to say Rob and I didn't have concerns. Close friends in Los Angeles had placed their toddler in a school that bills itself as humanistic, experiential, play-based, while supporting children with the deepest respect for their dignity and self-worth. At the school, aptly called Play Mountain Place, children design their own curriculum and there are no grades, punishments, or rewards. Children may skip lunch if they want or wear diapers until they're six. No potty training required. The choice is theirs. Even in the primary school years, Play Mountain Place students aren't required to learn to read or write or do arithmetic. Teachers treat children like adults, capable of making their own decisions, though certainly chaos sometimes rules. Imagine Lord of the Flies, our friends Jen and Kevin told us. But the school's philosophy is that academic success is only one way to be a human being, and that children should develop in their own skin, at their own pace. It's fair to say that when I thought about Play Mountain Place when I wasn't chuckling at the school's audacity, I was paralyzed with insecurity about my decision for Rainey. The school was an extreme choice by any measure, but still, I wondered whether it might pump out confident, natural leaders who could independently direct playdates as well as their own academic pursuits. Conversely, would the Chinese way only produce produce mathematics mega-nerds who would ultimately give up, Gulp. working for the adult version of those Play Mountain Place kids? The reality would never be so black and white, but my fears were also glaring and stark. So I concocted a master plan to offset what I considered deficiencies in Rainey's Chinese schooling, and home would be our domi- domain. Safety was non-negotiable, as it is for the Chinese, but for almost everything else, Rob and I encouraged our son to decide for himself. We populated his room with markers and art supplies and infused his environment with choice. Rainey could make decisions such as what he'd wear, what books he'd read, and what sports he'd play. Musical instruments were strictly optional. On low pollution days, we headed to the soccer field or the tennis courts and spent hours kicking a ball or rallying over the net. The Shanghai government had also put muscle behind developing a thriving cultural scene, and to expose our kids to art, we began frequently frequenting some of the city's museums, which were beginning to bring in international exhibitions. We also pursued activities that had no purpose other than leisure, such as fishing, which is purely inefficient from the Chinese point of view. Why don't you just buy fish at the market? A Chinese acquaintance one, once asked me. Plan in place. We readied ourselves for another year of Chinese school. On the first day of school, of the new middle-class year, Rainey bounded out the front door. Let's go, Mom! Rainey squealed as we rode the elevator down to street level. Rainey dived headfirst into the mayhem of, street, of the streets, skipping a few steps ahead of me. Slow down! I yelled after him. The street vendors were out. A weathered man from Xinjiang balanced a bamboo rod across his shoulders, a basket of cherries on one end, and a platter of purplish Shanya fruit on the other. If he walked straight, rod and all, he'd clear an eight-foot-wide section of sidewalk. Instead, he sidestepped gingerly, winding through the sidewalk crowd until he found a place to stop and display his wares. Bicycles and electric scooters weaved in and out of a glut of vehicles, which had slowed the pace of traffic in the street to that of the parking lot. Vehicle exhaust drifted into my nose. Rainy continued to bound ahead of me, past the bustling hospital and eventually into the alleyway that led to Sun Qing Ling. We passed a pigeon vendor and his squawking birds, and entered a maze of shikumen lane homes with laundries flapping from the windows. Down this alley, a little vegetable market was underway, with wizened vendors unfolding canvas tarps on the pavement. The tarps cradled heads of white cabbage, green bok choy, garlic, chives, and plump orange carrots. How do you sell these? A customer asked, tapping a fat, cream-colored daikon. Twelve kui a kilogram. Strolling through a Chinese neighborhood accosted all these senses. I was glad to be back, and so was Rainy. Yet, as we approached the familiar iron gates of the school, Rainy suddenly slowed, as if anticipating the transition from an American summer to a Chinese schoolroom would be jarring. "'Wait, Mom, wait,' Rainy said, slowing. I, "'I don't want to go. The teachers are going to say that they're all going to call Mommy if I'm bad, and then they, but they don't call.' I caught up alongside him. Honey, you have a new teacher this year, and new classmates. Let's see how the day goes, shall we? The first month at Sun Qing Ling, a new element of order emerged in the morning routine. Blaring bullhorn at the entrance gate, Principal Tu had begun standing just inside the gate, holding a loudspeaker larger than her head, and she took to screaming at parents and children, as if they were cattle, about to miss the closing gate. "'Don't be late! Don't be late!' she blared, as parents and grandparents scurried. "'We will close the doors at 9 a.m. If you are late, you won't be able to come into school!' We were called out the second morning, even though I tried to keep my head down as I entered the gates. "'Rainy, it's 9.02 a.m.' blaring bullhorn pronounced as my little boy's name echoed across big green if you're late tomorrow you cannot come into school boo how ye see we are very embarrassed i told principal Tu's bullhorn since i couldn't see her face i nearly cautoed <laughs> rainy shrank against my legs and we scampered up to the classrooms from the outside sun jingling's discipline was as fierce as ever inside we would discover things were changing. We are trying to adopt some Western ways. Rainey's teacher, Chen, had uttered those words during our parent-teacher conference the previous year, offering her defense as I'd inquired about threat-making in the classroom. As I stared at Rainey's new master teacher from the middle class year, the context for that comment began to materialize. Affection in education is important, Teacher Song told a group of parents in a fourth-floor conference room. Adults should learn to express their love for children so they become loving people full of affection, Teacher Song told us, from her perch at the front of a rectangular table carved of rosewood. Ballerina slender, she had black hair that shone sapphire blue, and a mole on her chin that seemed to dance as she talked. Where last year's teacher Chen had dark teeth that seemed ominous, Song had only gleaming bright whites, which I noticed because she liked to smile. Already, this was an immediate sea change from last year. We don't force young children to do exercises, Song continued. Rather, we incorporate learning naturally into our daily activities. We learn the basics gradually. Was I hearing correctly? Who was this person, and how long would she last at Sun Ching Ling with such radical ideas? Painting is not about strictly following the teacher's example, Song continued. We expect the children to find a way to express themselves through signs, lines, and shapes. We teach basic painting methods and have a lot of latitude for them to explore. I found myself nodding but Song offered counsel for parents who might find that this kind of exploration unruly or even offensive. We shouldn't judge a picture by whether it looks similar to a model, she told us. Don't tell your children your painting is so ugly. Just encourage and compliment the kids. They will perform better when they have confidence. It was a classic argument for self-esteem. Song even decidedly had decidedly un-Chinese advice about prepping for an academic career. "'Don't jam knowledge down your children's throats,' she said. "'Middle-class children need a little bit of pressure, but not too much.' I glanced around the table. Some parents nodded, while others wore faces of doubt. I took a closer look at the skeptics.' Sitting at this rosewood shrine to education was a mom who'd worked with her child to memorize 1,000 Chinese characters over the summer. Others had commenced piano and flute lessons for their kids. One parent had snapped a picture of his son's cram school math exercises and sent out proof of the boy's diligence over the WeChat parent group. Song had words for this kind of parenting my daughter is in the fourth grade now and i never taught her anything when she was in kindergarten she said let your children enjoy their childhood she made sure to scorn the top scoring child in her daughter's class as an over-tutored and highly scheduled kid a kid like this will burn out before he enters the workforce song told us frankly Song sounded a bit like a teacher from Brooklyn or Los Angeles, pushing a progressive education and urging us to opt out of the toddler rat race. I was encouraged by her words, but wondered whether her philosophy would translate to action in the classroom. Time would tell. Song concluded our meeting with some distinctly Chinese goals, which had to do with eating. Children would train their chopstick muscles in the class this year, she said, They'd learn to debone butterfish and peel the shells off of shrimp without assistance. And, as always, the pace of eating is important, Sun said, because winter is coming. Food cools very fast in winter, so we've started training. Lunch must be finished in 30 minutes or less, otherwise it gets too cold, Song explained. At this I laughed. The Chinese have strict rules about temperature of anything they swallow, and they felt strongly enough to incorporate guidelines into the educational curriculum. Food must be eaten hot to maximize digestion and absorption. Water is never to be drunk cold, and stir-fried foods are to be chased by hot tea or warm water to melt the oils in the tummy. Order a beer at a restaurant in China, and the waitress waitress will ask you whether you want it warm. Overall, Much of Song's approach sounded like second nature to me. Things I might do as a matter of instinct talk with kids about topics that interest them, listen patiently, read books together, encourage children to work independently, and enhance their self esteem and confidence. This was entirely contrary to what I'd expected so far in Chinese education. What explained teacher Song? A Shanghai kindergarten principal offered a clue one morning. I'd requested an interview to talk about trends in education, and in response, she handed me an official looking booklet. Issued in the 2000s by the Ministry of Education, it was titled, Guideline of Children's Learning and Development for Three to Six-Year-Old Children. I glanced down at the book, with its white cover and orange and black print. I gave it the nickname, White Bible. A fitting moniker. I thought, for the government's attempt at steering early education in a kinder, gentler direction. This is a very important book, the woman had told me, patting white Bibles cover. All kindergartens in China must abide by this. It says that everything should be placed on children's natural rate of development. Intrigued, I flipped through the booklet to find dozens of proclamations all designed to protect the sanctity and individuality of the Chinese child. Every child will progress at different rates, White Bible proclaimed. Individual differences should be respected. Do not use one ruler to measure all children. In other words, I thought, don't measure children's height, weight, and recorder prowess and post rankings in a public corridor. Maintain positive, happy emotions for children proclaimed White Bible. Meaning, don't threaten children with police capture, as Rainey's teachers had last year. Encourage children to develop with the courage to explore and imagine, White Bible proclaimed. In other words, little pumpkin should be allowed to draw rain in any color he wishes. Guide children through experience and hands-on learning rather than indoctrination and pursuit of knowledge, White Bible stated. Meaning, don't cram children's head full of facts and Chinese characters during summer test prep? Then this. Allow young children to make mistakes. Do not beat them. They will be so afraid of punishment. They will tell a lie. I blinked and looked again. Clearly, the Chinese government felt it needed to spell this one out. Much of what White Bible I learned was borrowed straight from the West, and it was required reading for kindergarten educators throughout China. With the help of UNICEF, United Nations Children's Fund, Chinese researchers had consulted early childhood development guides uh, from 13 countries, including the United States, United Kingdom, Germany, and France to help educators better encourage the physical, mental, and moral health of young children. I'd heard vaguely of attempts at system-wide reform, and when I finally delved into its specifics, I was surprised to find that China was looking to the West for lessons about nurturing the whole child, just as we'd been looking with envy at their academic achievers. In fact, China has been trying to make its school system friendlier and more welcoming for children of all ages, from the youngest toddlers all the way up to college students. And this effort began decades ago. White Bible was just the latest aim at kindergarten reform. Clearly, some educators took to its directives like Second Nature, while others, like Pumpkin's teacher, were battling long-held attitudes and behaviors which kept their classrooms traditional and their approach authoritarian. I could name violations I'd seen or heard about which infringed upon nearly every one of the book's tenets. Yet this booklet was evidence that, at least philosophically, China was trying to move in a friendlier direction in educating its children. There is nothing that should remain unchanged when it comes to reform of our educational institutions. Ministry of Education official Wang Feng told me during an education conference in Beijing. What had instigated this kind of effort? In 2004, Ma Zhu got very angry and what happened next made him famous. Ma, was a scholarship student at Yunnan University, described by his family as studious and shy. He'd run away from home once during high school because he was afraid he'd failed the gaokao, but soon enough he came back around. These were fears familiar to any Chinese grade schooler and for the most part, Ma Jiaju was unremarkable in nearly every way. Until the day a handful of college classmates accused him of cheating in a card game. At that, Ma took a knife and promptly killed his accusers, four students, including his roommate, and stuffed their bodies into dormitory closets. Then he went on the run. "'Student killer! An introvert who finally cracks!' proclaimed China Daily." A nationwide manhunt ensued, and Ma was finally arrested in Senya after twenty-one days. Another famous case of social malfeasance came when Tsinghua University student tossed sulfuric acid in the face of several bears at the Beijing Zoo. One bear was blinded, the others injured. More recently, a handful of universities have documented cases of students poisoning classmates Sometimes resulting in death or paralysis. One incident involved the 2013 death of a student named Huang Yang after his roommate laced the dormitory water cool cooler with toxins. These events typically prompted a national soul searching about education in China. Why would Ma Jiaju kill his classmates for a mere insult? What about his life had turned him a sociopath? Sociopath. Why would a student at one of China's top universities treat bears at a zoo so inhumanely? Why would a student poison his roommate? These were extreme incidents, yes, but state bureaucrats and educators seized on them to continue an impassioned plea for change. These events are the shortcomings of our education. It is a wake up call. We can't focus only on students' academic development. We must also cultivate healthy personalities and good emotional competence, said Wei Yu, Vice Minister of Education, for nearly a decade. Our education lays emphasis on competition and individual success. Chinese students are clever and hardworking, but lack the spirit of sharing and cooperation, said a professor during an interview for People's Daily Online. China's leadership had intended to fashion a school system to create well-rounded, moral, athletic, hard-working contributors to society. Instead, what they got is a population of test-taking machines, without social and emotional abilities, as many a media report put it. It was clear where the blame should lie for creating generations of professional students, China's Test-Based Education System, or Yingxi Jiayu, say experts, and government officials alike. Government documents themselves condemn the system with harsh words. It's a radical departure from the basic needs of learners. It buries students under mountains of homework. It makes scores the only measure of worth of a child. It hurts students' initiative and creativity It violates the original tenets of the Education Act itself. Amanda, my friend from Shanghai, told me, I've never been allowed the time to learn how to deal with people. I know books, but I hate human contact. The bodies of school children are wasting away under the weight of their books. The eye doctors of China would tell you that children have vision problems like never before. Four out of 10 elementary school kids are nearsighted. A doubling of myopia myopia, in China over the past decade. Middle school kids fare even worse. Genetics, perhaps, but the media, media and commentators seized on what they saw as proof that change was desperately needed. And while students' brains are growing fatter with knowledge, so are their bodies. One in five school-age girls is considered obese. And for boys, it's one in three. Although changing diets are partly to blame. China has paid a very high price for focusing on tests. Guan Yi, a teacher at Suzhou High School, told me, Learning something and taking a test on something are two completely different things, said Xu Jingdong, a former government official in Jiangsu, province. China's highest education officials haven't sat by idly. In fact, for decades, they've tried to move the system away from testing. Let, let's usher in a more holistic approach to education, the ministry decreed in the 1980s, adopting a concept called Suji jiaoyu," or quality education. This was part of a government campaign to lift the quality of the entire Chinese population. The one child policy was part of this effort. This quality education umbrella effort gave rise to dozens of policies. When officials found that toddlers were learning content appropriate but for much older children, they declared, let us de-elementarize preschool. That became the title of a policy document. When research showed that preschool games helped lighten the academic load for young children, games and play became the name of another. The decrees came fast and furious. They addressed the education of preschoolers all the way through college. Although, altogether, hundreds of directives came out of the central ministry with fancy names such as kinder, gentler, and they attempted a variety of changes. They prohibited elementary school ed- entrance exams, shortened the school day, slapped a time limit on homework for school grade schoolers, banned numerical grades, and prohibited makeup classes after school on weekends or during holidays, just to name a few. All were aimed at lightening the academic pressure on China's compulsory student population, roughly 200 million strong. And indeed, Lessen the burden became the title of another policy. Education bureaus at provincial and local levels attempted their own initiatives. Shanghai's education ministry, for example, recently required that middle and high school schools employ full-time psychological counselors to help students cope with academic pressure. Entrance exams are also getting a hard look as the government attempts to diminish their importance for high school and college admissions. In Shanghai, the most recent form considers calling for students to have two chances to pass parts of the gaokao, with the idea that the chance for a do-over makes the first time less of a nail-biter. In 2017, Shanghai universities will also consider outside-of-school activities such as volunteering as well as the score of regular, routine high school tests. I get the trend. More and more universities are being asked to consider the whole student instead of only that single Gaokao score. As I studied, these reform efforts, which seemed to point one way and then reverse course to try something altogether different, one thing became achingly clear. The Chinese government's long-standing dissatisfaction with its school system, as well as a paralysis when it came to fixing it all, once and for all. Intentions to change are well and good, but this parent has a horse in the game. I wanted to know the outcomes. What did these reform efforts mean for a daily student's life? What did they mean for Rainy? I discovered that the Education Ministry and Reform Advocates had been taking the pulse of its patients, the country's school system, and all those involved, in the form of surveys. Most recently, it surveyed nearly 5,000 primary middle school students, principals, and parents all over China. But the results, released in 2013, after several generations of reform had come to pass, were disheartening. Only one in four students felt that their workload had lessened. Students were still buried under homework. Most kids were still taking outside prep classes despite an outright ban on extracurricular study. More than three-quarters of students suffered from yangzhu, or a hatred of study. The results hadn't changed much since 2005, when a wide-ranging survey found most students had no time for housework or exercise, and indicators of study fatigue dotted the report with words such as depression, boredom, and anxiety. Today, one in three students say they actually have an even heavier workload than before. Despite decades of work, educators had measured no significant progress in reducing academic pressures. The culprit was clear. All those tests were making it impossible for students to do anything other than bend their heads over books, and and entrance exams for high school and college, still firmly in place, only intensified the effort and the pressure. I spoke with a Shanghai psychologist who had been installed at the middle school as a part of a reform effort. My office is often empty. I try, I'm trying to cure Shu, a hatred of study. But students are often too busy taking tests to come talk to me, said Ling Chau. The former education chief of Yunnan province, Lu, Luo Chongming, gave a biting assessment in a speech. Any policies are completely empty and unfeasible. "'Because Gaokao is still there,' he ranted. "'The only way to really relieve the burden of study "'is to change the current evaluation system, "'which is exam-oriented. "'Middle schools and high schools "'don't dare slow down their pace. "'The Ministry of Education has no real power "'to punish schools, "'and officials and civil servants "'never carry out any supervision. "'Lessen the burden has been going on "'for more than half a century.' but the burden on students has in fact increased greatly. Looking carefully, I saw that this burden was actually revealed in the same PISA, Program for International Student Assessment, tests that placed Shanghai students top in the world in math, reading, and science. That exam had also surveyed students' quality of life, creative thinking skills, and time spent in study. And in these areas, the Chinese saw only slashing red marks all over their test papers. In fact, the man, commonly dubbed as the grandfather of Chinese education reform, looked with jealousy across the Straits to Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan. Those countries scored right after Shanghai, second, third, and fourth. But they spend a third to a half the time Shanghai students do in study. Yang told me in Beijing in 2015. He's right. On the amount of kit times kids spent poring over books, Shanghai, too, was also the world's number one. There's one more important thing. American kids may score lower on paper tests, but those who excel in math love the subject from their heart. Chinese students have better scores But their interest in math is not sustainable, said Lu Jian, a mathematician who works on Chinese national curriculum. He cited research that shows Chinese students' interest in a subject is more externally driven by exams, attention from teachers, rewards, and the announcement of scores. Once those external rewards are taken away, Lu told me, their interest and motivation to learn wane. If a student is not interested in learning, it will be difficult for him to achieve great things in the future, as Beijing professor Gu Mingyang put it. Instead of celebrating their top rank perch, Chinese educators had questions. How did Finland achieve their results in half the homework time? And how can we get our children to love learning for the sake of learning itself? Here's the conundrum facing the Chinese Ministry of Education. When entrance exams are less important, students would certainly feel the pressure lift away. But then educators must come up with another way to select kids for high school and college. That would mean introducing such things as essays, interviews, and teacher references. That requires human graders, and they're prone to make all sorts of mistakes, said Andreas Schleckler, the architect of the PISA exam. Once you introduce human graders in a high-stakes environment, you raise all sorts of questions. You can imagine what happens. The system simply isn't ready for gray areas. China must process millions of students each year from 34 provinces and municipalities all over China and filter them into one of nearly 3,000 higher education institutions. And there aren't enough spots for everyone. So, for 100% reliability, Sheckler concluded, you always go back to multiple-choice tests. This is the black-and-white option, which theoretically leaves no room for corruption and mayhem. In principle, then, Gaokao is as close to giving everyone a fair shake as you'll possibly get. Chinese culture also prevents change. The country suffers from a so- societal loyalty to testing, which grants social status based on scores. A hard habit to break, all right. <laughs> China is a, national, a nation of test addicts, says educational consultant Zhang Shuching. Video games are addictive, and tests are addictive for the same reason. You do a math test, next day you find out you get a 99. I'm a great person, right? It's an instant feedback loop. I understood this sentiment well. More than 50 years after my father took the National College entrance exam in Taiwan, he can recite his total score and the individual tally for each of the six subjects of math, chemistry, physics, Chinese, English, and Chinese constitution. You can still see that pride in his 70-year-old shoulders as well as having the joy of having been admitted to Taiwan's top university. Identification by number extends to the community as an adult. I accompanied my father to his college reunion and marveled that, over dinner, he and his classmates would still cite each other's entrance exam scores and subsequent rankings in college four decades after the fact. When it came my turn to sit for what you might call America's equivalent, the SAT, Scholastic Aptitude Test, my father liked the results so much, he locked the score in his memory. Fifteen years later, as he toasted Rob and me to a lifetime of happiness at our wedding, he quoted the numbers before 200 guests over filet mignon. My daughter was a national merit finalist, he'd announce as I shrank into my seat at the head table. The message, that number was a measure of my worth as a human being. Long after a person's formal education is complete, China still likes to test, as if the country itself were an addict. Qualification exams exist for all sorts of professions, including doctors, therapists, lawyers, and judges and the civil service exam sits at the gateway to a government job. There's also a test for standard Mandarin speaking. America doesn't have one for spoken English? My Chinese friend Meredith asked, stunned when I shook my head. In China, it's very important. The standard for cops is a score of 80, for teachers is 87, and for actresses is 93. For some professions, The score is only a recommendation. For broadcasters, like Meredith, whose voices radiate over national airwaves, a minimum score of 97 is mandatory. I got a 98, she said proudly. You're supposed to take it every five years. It's very important to have standard Mandarin. I discovered something else, which turns out to be the Chinese school system's straitjacket. Tests in China are actually used to assess teachers and schools. Generally, teachers are evaluated on their students' test scores, and schools are ranked on measures such as how well they graduate students into the next level of schooling, which is often determined by entrance exams. As much as everyone hates testing, teachers needed their kids to focus on it. This was becoming more and more true in the United States, too. In fact, in China, A high school teacher's salary can be boosted up to 20 to 40% if his students' Gaokao scores are high, estimated Wei Yong, a teacher at Beijing National Day School. Schools win and lose reputations based on their students' collective Gaokao scores. High scores are a gift that keep giving as administrators can justify charging more for school incidentals, and it's not uncommon for government funding decisions to be based on performance. Results are collated and ranked by class, school, city, and province-wide like a public school card. No one truly wants to reform, the former headmaster Kang Jiang told me. As long as Gaokao is an evaluation for educators, the pressure will always be there he added ominously. And gaokao has only gotten more important. The Chinese proverb, Shi Jin, Jin Ri bi, means don't put off for tomorrow what you could do today. Another Ming Dynasty poem ponders if you delay something until tomorrow, how many tomorrows can you have? Don't procrastinate, as the proverbs go, since there's always a task to be tackled or a chore to complete. This lesson is ingrained in my own muscle memory. As much as I've tried to fight it, and for every Chinese member of my immediate family, unfortunately, relaxation is a learned skill. Even today, I struggle with guilt when I kick back with a glass of wine after a long day's work. Shouldn't I be rebalancing my retirement portfolio, cleaning the kitchen, exercising? One day, Teacher Song tapped into this sentiment over WeChat. The school will host a distinguished panel who will speak on elementary school readiness and admissions, she wrote, the ultimate in Jinri-shi, Jinri-bi, given that elementary school was nearly two years down the road. Rainy's final adjustment, I cried to Rob, wishing I could kick back and relax on this one. Can't we coast for a little bit? We're probably already late in thinking about it, he replied, shaking his head. As always, Teacher Song insisted on an immediate reply. Please let me know if you'd like to reserve a seat. So many RSVPs flooded in that the school was compelled to plan a second section. I once had a glimpse at a test for one of Shanghai's top three elementary schools. Three pages long, it was full of problems written in Chinese characters with multiple choice answers. For example, there are two glasses of juice. The child drinks half a glass and mama pours it full again. The child drinks another half a glass and mama pours it full again. Then the child drinks everything up. How many glasses of juice has the child had to drink? This is intended for five-year-olds. I thought to myself. how hao see? Let me bother you for a moment. I pulled Rainey's teacher aside one day. Aren't primary school entrance exams supposed to be banned? I thought the system was trying to lighten the testing. Why should we prepare for them? Yes, but prestigious schools still have entrance exams, Teacher Song said, glancing my way with surprise. It's important, because some of the best High schools are part of a system, and acceptance to the right track starts with primary school. This was the same reasoning uttered by Gregory Yao, the extracurricular-obsessed father who'd put his daughter in early MBA classes as a toddler. I looked at Teacher Song, processing my first inkling that her classroom might deviate from the wet white Bible, words she championed in the first parent meeting. How could it, inside of this culture and system? Song and I had developed an easy rapport. Teacher Chen, Rainey's teacher last year, saw a foreigner needing re-education. But Song was more likely to see the nuance of my existence in China. "'You look like us Chinese,' she had said to me once, quizzically, giving a nod to my Mandarin with a foreign accent." "'I am like you, Chinese, except I'm American,' I'd assured her. "'My parents are Chinese, but immigrated to America when they were young.' (inaudible) "'Jidao I understand,' Sung had said, nodding her acceptance. "'On Teacher Appreciation Day, I decided to deliver a coach wristlet, "'determined to get our relationship off to a healthy start.' Rainy traced out a dinosaur onto cardstock, and I slipped his handiwork inside. Teacher Song, surveying my offering, small enough to nestle in my palm, discreetly wrapped in white tissue and decided to accept. Overnight, she changed her mind. This is expensive, she said the next morning, pulling the package from a hiding place inside of a bin of markers. She quickly pressed it into my hand. Sorry, I can't take this. It's just a small token of our appreciation. I hand-carried it from America. No import taxes. It's not that expensive, I said. It was textbook politeness strategy. Can you give it to your friend or your mother? She said firmly, indicating that the conversation was over. For now. She was playing her part in the re-offer decline exchange, and I nodded. Even though she'd refused my gift, she noted my gesture, and according to the protocol of Chinese gift-giving, I was slowly working my way into the club. Song's WeChat profile photo showed her sitting on a ledge with the ocean undulating behind her. A little girl perched on her lap. She looked to be about 11 years old. Like me, Teacher Song was the mother of a child in China. Forced to navigate the system. We were both trying to find the best way forward. On the day of the preparedness seminar, I filed into the assembly hall alongside 150 other parents. On stage were three mothers whose children had graduated from Sun Ching Ling into higher levels of schooling. The mothers were dressed formally and seated before microphones. And it was the second speaker who resonated most with the audience of anxious parents. With the more and more flat world, our kids should not have a good mastery of Chinese, math and English, but also art and philosophy, she told the group of parents. Mother of three children, the woman clearly had the money or connections needed to skirt the one-child policy, either by giving birth overseas or paying fines. We all need a blueprint, A rough draft of your children's development plan. What's the potential secondary school after primary school? Or should they go abroad? Or is it better to finish bachelor's at Fudan, Jiao Tong, or Peking University? She asked, naming the country's elite universities. Then pursue master's degrees abroad? Some parents scribbled notes, while others trained video cameras on the preparedness gurus. We're all on this path, the speaker was saying. Not only for our children, but also for our children's children. That's how important our decisions will be. She spoke of a television series from 19 years ago called Yongzheng Dynasty. I'll never forget when Emperor Yongzheng said, Don't merely choose the new emperor. Also take into account the next heir and the next one. The parents all with the toddlers in the classrooms just down the hall, nodded as they thought of the futures of their unborn children and grandchildren. Murmuring agreements rippled through the crowd. In this room, I thought, glancing around at the nodding heads of Sun Qing Ling parents, were 150 reasons reform would not be coming quickly to Chinese education. The forces of culture and a test-based system were too strong to ignore. I would soon discover a new reason that change was slow to come. For an independent thinker, raised inside a democracy, it was the most unsettling of all. That's the end of Chapter 6. In our next podcast, we'll move into Chapter 7, which is the same title as the book, Little Soldiers. Thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying the book. I think this chapter was a very, very interesting one. I hope you paid close attention. Uh, But until next time, I'll see you soon.